Welcome to the Public Morality. On February 24th, Russia launched a large-scale invasion of Ukraine. Many foreign policy experts assumed Russia would be victorious rather quickly, with the only question being, what would Russian President Vladimir Putin's inevitable victory mean for the spread of authoritarian rule globally? We're now in the middle of May. And though Russia may still be victorious, it has been tough sledding as Ukraine has fought valiantly under the leadership of its president, Vladimir Zelensky. Is the conflict in its current state still looking like an inevitable Russian victory, or has it already bogged down into a war of attrition? Joining me to discuss the current state of the Russian-Ukraine conflict, we welcome back University of Virginia professor of politics, John Owen. Professor John Owen, welcome back to The Public Morality. Thank you, Byron Williams. Good to be back with you. When we talked earlier this year, Russia's invasion of Ukraine was in its genesis. Uh, we're several months in now. How do you assess it? Well, like most people who have been observing this closely, I am surprised. I, I mean, I was surprised shortly into the war, and I'm still surprised really at how poorly Russia has performed and how, how well Ukraine has performed. We now know something we didn't know when the war started, which is Russia is actually not a great power, what we in the international relations field call a great power. It certainly is a powerful country. It has 4,500, at least 4,500 nuclear warheads, big army, some high-tech munitions, um, but we usually reserve the term great power for uh, countries like the United States and, and China, countries that really are have a preponderance of military power. And most of us thought Russia was in that club, and now we realize they can't even conquer a small neighbor, Ukraine. They are less likely, therefore, to attack Poland or their, their other neighbor. In fact, it's hard to see how in the world they could do that now. So we've all had to adjust our thinking about the state of the world, if you know what I mean. The international system has two great powers, not three. Um, so that's uh, kind of a big picture conclusion that, that most of us are drawing. But uh, as, as to the war itself, Russia's conventional military power, that is to say non-nuclear non um, military power, is really hobbled by bad logistics. You know, they, they uh, early in the war, you'll remember, it looked like they would take Kiev, the capital, quickly and lots of other parts in northern Ukraine. They had to withdraw several weeks ago and focus on eastern and southern Ukraine. Now, they, they still uh, may, in fact, uh, hold those areas. But this is quite a scaled back set of goals from what they initially wanted, apparently. The other thing that's surprising, kind of the other side of the coin, is Ukraine has um, a lot more patriotism, much better leadership in Volodymyr Zelensky, and a lot more support from NATO, from the United States, than... Uh, a lot of us thought it would it would get. And these things kind of relate to each other. You know, the fact that Ukraine has fought back so well, that they're determined to keep every inch of their territory, that they have a charismatic president has helped the United States and the other NATO countries to see their way to supporting Ukraine really robustly. So uh, the big the big picture on the war is it's not going very well for Russia. That doesn't mean Russia is going to lose, certainly not anytime soon. But we have, um, the two sides have really settled into a war of attrition where they are grinding it out in eastern and southern Ukraine. It, th there are no spectacular news items coming it, it, regarding battles right now. It's kind of a tough slog. There are horrible, still horrible stories about uh, civilians, you know, what the war is doing to civilians, the shelling of cities and uh, Mariupol, that giant steel factory there, uh, and so on. And the, the war is still heavily destructive and a real horror. Um, but as far as progress in the war for either Russia or Ukraine, it's pretty slow. Ukraine has had some successes around Kharkiv 
in the northeast of Ukraine. That's that's surprising. They've actually been pushing Russian troops slowly uh, out of that area. That's another surprise. I, honestly, I didn't I did not see that coming two months ago. Might the military gains by Ukraine, aided by NATO, make Russia more desperate? The answer is yes, and that's something to worry about. Let me uh, back up a little bit and talk about just why Russia might become more and more desperate. We have our side, NATO, the United States, has been supplying Ukraine with precision guided munitions. These are these high tech weapons such as artillery shells and rockets that uh, use um, semiconductors, use computer technology, let's say, and are really, really precise. They can hit the target you want. Uh, so they're very efficient. They're, they're quite expensive. Russia has some of these too, but Russia has really gone through as far as we can tell. And there, there are a couple of both in the United States and in the United Kingdom, there are um, institutes that, that monitor this really closely. And our own Pentagon is monitoring, monitoring this. So public information says that the Russians have burned through a lot of their precision guided munitions. We don't quite know how many they have left, but we do know that they're, they're having trouble manufacturing new ones because of the economic sanctions. In other words, they cannot import a lot of the components of precision guided munitions. Whereas Ukraine, which doesn't make its own precision guided munitions, but gets them from our side, has a huge supply still coming in. The United States, and European allies have been turning over lots of these things to Ukraine and are still doing that, probably as I speak. So you can see the problem here for Russia. Russia is, is forced to rely on what we call dumb, dumb weapons. Literally, these are artillery shells, rockets that aren't guided by computer systems. They are old fashioned, like World War II, Vietnam War era. And this puts Russia at a real disadvantage. They have to fire off lots more shells to get the same result. So this war of attrition really favors Ukraine because it's helped so much by NATO and the United States. It, it puts Russia at a real disadvantage. So things are uh, pretty grim now for Russia compared to what its initial goals were and their looking, if you kind of game this out, they're looking worse and worse in the coming weeks and months. Uh, before I talk about Rus Russian desperation and how Putin might respond, one more thing about this. Russia would like, no, no doubt, would like some help from, say, China. China manufactures some high-tech components, and it also imports others. And Russia would love to get a hold of some of that so that it can start uh, building its own precision guided munitions again. But China so far doesn't want to do that, maybe because the United States is putting a lot of pressure on China. Uh, President Biden apparently said to Xi Jinping early in the war, or, or maybe it was Jake um, it was Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State. In any case, high, high level talks between the, the Americans and the Chinese very early in the war in which the Americans really warned the Chinese do not even think about helping Russia in this war with these uh, high tech munitions. Uh, if you do, we will impose really severe economic sanctions on your companies. And the Chinese don't want that. So China could change its mind. It could decide it really has a strong interest in Russia winning or at least enduring. But so far, China is uh, diplomatically favoring Russia. But in terms of economic sanctions, it is not helping Russia very much right now. So, all right, all of that background is to say that Putin has other options. If he finds that he's really losing this war, as I'm saying he, he might in the coming weeks and months, he can do other things. He can initiate uh, cyber attacks in Europe or in the United States. And this is quite hazy. I'm not a cyber expert. And a lot of this is hidden uh, information. The only intelligence people have a, have, have a good handle on it. But 
we do know that Russia has, in fact, carried out, out cyber attacks, including in this country. So he could do some of that. He could turn to weapons of mass destruction, chemical, biological, or nuclear weapons. That would be, any of this would be crossing a threshold that maybe he doesn't want to cross, but if he's desperate, truly desperate, he might cross one of these thresholds. So, uh, and, and the most worrisome really is, of course, the nuclear threshold. Uh, so it's um, some, something that lots of people are thinking hard about on, on the uh, Western side, let's say, thinking very, very hard about that. Yeah, I'm going to come back to that nuclear piece, um, but, but, but I um, went back uh, when um, you and I first talked and seemed like just a couple weeks ago, but it was actually a couple months ago when you and I were in conversation, and I posed three scenarios to you, um, assuming advantage Russian scenarios, and, this, and the assumption of an advantage Russia scenario would be A, a Munich agreement, something similar to Germany's annexation of the Sudetenland, B, Germany's invasion of Austria, or C, something akin to the 1940 Vichy-type government uh, that was established in France. At this point, are any of those scenarios within, within the realm of possibility in your view? Well, not so much. Now, I do remember, Byron, those early days when it, again, looked like Russia had uh, might have its, not its pick of outcomes, but it really was in a strong, it was in the driver's seat. Now it's, it's not, not in the driver's seat. Um, the one, the one of those, there could be a partial uh, analogy to one of those. And that, that would be that uh, Czechoslovak um, situation when, when uh, Nazi Germany annexed the Sudetenland, this rim of land around Czechoslovakia, what is now the Czech Republic, that part of it that was inhabited by German speakers for the most part, very pro-Nazi. Uh, there was a strong Nazi party in the Sudetenland, and so it was an easy grab for Hitler. Of course, Hitler didn't stop. He eventually annexed the rest of Czechoslovakia in 1939. But in any case, had he stopped with the Sudetenland, you know, maybe that would be something like what Putin has in mind as his, um, I mean, he, I think Putin still would love to have all of Ukraine under his control, but he's just not going to get it anytime soon. I was going to say, I, I repeatedly heard um, early on that Russia assumed this conflict would be completed by now, which says to me that hubris was involved in the planning and that um, there obviously were some miscalculations. Um, would this be accurate? And if so, what were some of those miscalculations in your view? He clearly overestimated his army, first of all. And in fact, I saw a news item yesterday, I think it was, that Putin has demoted the FSB. That's the successor to the KGB, his civilian uh, intelligence service, apparently the FSB. Uh, he, he blames the FSB for giving him bad information about both the strength of his own military and the weakness, especially the weakness of the Ukrainian army and the weakness of Ukrainian uh, morale. They were evidently telling Putin that when Russia invades Ukraine, there'll be um, uprisings among the Russian speakers in eastern Ukraine and they'll welcome the troops and they'll throw flowers at them and so on. And, you know, that just didn't didn't happen. So he's quite angry. Uh, understandably, and so he's not talking to the FSB about the war. Instead, he's talking to Russia's military intelligence, the GRU. Uh, they, they are apparently, they still have his trust. So, so I think one problem Putin had was just bad information, um, a sec both about his own side and about Ukraine. Um, a second problem um, he had might some are speculating he's a little bit irrational now i i'm not i don't really believe that but but it's worth talking about he has and, and by rationality i mean really is he perceiving the situation correctly is he able to match his means to his ends to his goals his goal 
clearly for years, for 20 years, ever since he's been running Russia, has been to subordinate Ukraine, to make Ukraine, if not a part of Russia, all of it, at least to make it a subordinate country, almost like a colony, a, a country that has to ask Russia's permission before doing anything. And so that's his goal. Now, that's not a goal that probably you or I would share. If I were president of Russia, I wouldn't wouldn't have that goal, but he does. So, okay, fine. The real question is, is he pursuing that goal rationally? And it clearly, in retrospect, invading Ukraine is not serving that goal. It has weakened Russia. It has united NATO as it hasn't been united since, I don't know, the early 1990s. It has pushed Finland and Sweden so that they're going to join NATO. That is not something Putin wanted. Uh, it has pushed the United States to move more troops into Poland and the Baltic countries. In other words, so far, the war has not served Putin's goals very well. And so that's why some people are saying this. He's starting to look a bit irrational. Um, I'm I'm reluctant to conclude that. I think he, he made mistakes. He made a colossal mistake in attacking Ukraine. But now he's he's sort of stuck. He's got to he's think about think. a way to. Uh, make the best of this lousy situation. And I think he's probably pursuing that in a rational fashion. That is to say, he hasn't started a nuclear war. He hasn't attacked Poland um, and so on. He, he hasn't surrendered. He's, he's kind of letting this thing play out. He's playing the diplomatic card. He's trying to divide NATO. He's calling in favors from Hungary, which is a member of NATO and, and so on. He's going to keep uh, playing this out to see how it goes for a little while longer, I think. Earlier, you you um, officially, uh, we have it here first on the public morality, that you classified this as a war of attrition. How might it influence the scenario, if it is, a, in fact, a war of attrition, that from the Ukrainians' perspective, they are defending their homeland? Um, and I would suspect from the rank and file Russian soldiers perspective, the primary motivation is to survive. How does that change the, 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 the balance of, of power here? It's very important. You know, Byron, the defender, it's sort of like the home, the home uh, team, home court advantage in sport. I don't mean to trivialize war is a lot more serious than, uh, you know, football or basketball game, but, but it's psychologically similar. It's your home country these people are visitors you know, in war. They don't, they're not visitors. They are the enemy. They're alien. They don't belong here. How dare they, you know? And so it plays out the, the home advantage works in a lot of ways. It makes uh, soldiers fight harder. So they're, they really are determined. They are fighting for home and hearth, you know, not just for some abstraction like national glory. They're fighting for their families, for their land. Uh, it also gives them an advantage in local knowledge of the terrain, right? They, they know where the hills and valleys are. They know, you know, which, what a stream floods in a certain part of the year. They know where the mud is, uh, you know, that, that sort of thing. And third, um, if you're the home country, your civilians are mostly wanting to defend the country and repel the invader. And so the invader, in this case, the Russians, have had a lot of trouble getting, a lot more trouble than they thought, getting Ukrainian civilians to cooperate with them. They, so some of the horrible massacres we've seen in the last few weeks in places like Bucha, Mariupol, uh, were Russian retaliation against Ukrainian civilians for um, helping the Ukrainian army and the Ukrainian militias and not helping the Russians. The Russians were... Some of them were shocked. They had been told, these Russian troops had been told that the Ukrainians would welcome them with flowers, as I said a minute ago. And uh, there, perhaps there's been some of that, but not, not very much and not as much as they thought. So the Russians have been quite angry and wanted to teach the Ukrainian civilians a lesson uh, and have behaved horribly. Uh, there, there are a lot of atrocities and we're only going to find out the full story after, after the war's over. But um, so, yeah, it's, you, you put your finger on a very serious problem for Russia. And as the war wears on, typically what happens is the 
defender only gets more determined. Only and, and this is the emotion of hatred is very powerful. And you you can see it when you hear Ukrainians talking about Russia and Russians. This is not how Eastern Ukrainians used to talk about Russia before the war. They were cousins and brothers and relatives and all part of the same culture and so on. And you're not hearing that talk anymore. You're hearing about how these are um, this is a pathological country. It's uh, Putin is evil. How dare the, the Russians do that? They're not like us and and so on. Uh, so th- this is a, a big, big long term problem for Russia. I want to actually go back to something you said earlier, um, and you were talking about the bad information that uh, Vladimir Putin received. I'm wondering, given that Putin is, in terms, 21st century classical strongman, if you will, is it possible in the strongman, you know, motif that if he wants to do something? Can, can you be the one that walks in with the on-the-other-hand scenario that might counter his uh, prevailing thoughts? You, you're referring to some kind of um, proposal for a settlement? Like someone walking in, uh, well, I'll, I'll, give, I, I'll, I'll give a tangible, it's not even a strongman scenario, but after Cable 243 uh, was issued by Henry Cabot, uh, Henry Cabot Lies that, we sh- that the United States should uh, support the coup, uh, when the Kennedy administration met, one person said, uh, m- maybe we should declare war, maybe we should declare victory and leave. And he became the ambassador of Devil's Island. That was back in 1963. So uh-huh. I'm wondering, can you have that? Well, uh, uh, Mr. Putin, maybe we shouldn't do this. Maybe they won't. Could you bring that news to Putin is what I'm asking? Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, great, great question. Yeah, there's a lot of um, research uh, on the differences between authoritarian countries and democracies when it comes to war. Decisions to go to war, how to conduct the war, how and whether to end the war. And the general take right now, there's some, there's some disagreement about this, but most of us who've looked into this agree that democracies have some advantages here. Right. So you might you might think often these authoritarians think no democracies have, are at a disadvantage because they're weak and they can't make up their minds they're not decisive. Uh, in fact, democracies are better at getting all kinds of information to their leaders, both uh, because of the separation of powers. You know, in, in our country, Congress holds hearings on wars as they're happening often or after the fact they'll hold hearings, and you have an opposition party, whatever party the president is, be it Republican or Democrat, you've got people in the other party in Congress who uh, don't mind doing a little damage to the president. So the president has to put up with this, right? We also have a free press. So if there are reporters or newspapers or TV channels or these days, internet sources that are against the war or skeptical or just honest inquirers, they get to publish and say what they want and uh, within, within reason. They can't reveal troop movements and that kind of thing, but they can certainly oppose a war. They can question in the run-up to a war. They can question it. Now, in an authoritarian country, at least the, the way a leader like Putin wants it to function, you don't have that. You don't have these problems. You don't have a meaningful opposition in the parliament. The legislature is called the State Duma in Russia. There are opposition parties in Russia, but they're very weak and they're getting weaker by the day. You have a small opposition press in Russia, but it's very weak and getting weaker by the day. They've been driven from uh, the radio and television. Uh, There's a little bit of Internet publication um, that's not for Putin, but it's really quite weak right now. And so and then within his own government, and this probably is the, the main point, maybe is what you're driving at. Uh, if you're an authoritarian leader and you're you're, you're known for purging, uh, firing, or worse, poisoning, getting rid of people you don't like, then you're not going to get good information from your advisors, from your intelligence bureau, from your foreign minister, from your embassies. They're all going to be afraid of you, and they're going to say to themselves, "All right, I could I could bring him the bad news, but I I don't know if I'd live." 
uh, to see another day if I did, or I, I, or maybe I'll lose my job and my kids won't get to go to college and that kind of thing. So, um, in a well-functioning democracy, that's not a problem. The, the, uh, advisors can bring the president or the prime minister in, accurate information so that he or she can make up their minds accurately. So, so yeah, the, all that is to say, uh, the scholarly literature on this says that authoritarian countries often make bad decisions because people are either are, are opponents or silent, uh, silenced, and some of them are actually afraid to bring the the, tr the true accurate information to the leader. Well, to, to that extent, can Putin simply declare victory of some sort, go home? Or does he need something tangible to substantiate that claim? Well, I think, yeah. So this reaches the limits of his power. Uh, so a lot of us think that he can get away with a lot because he, he's close to a dictator. He's not as strong as Stalin was or, or Hitler, but he's, he's getting a lot stronger. That said, there are, as with Hitler, there are no doubt people and particularly in the Russian army, but uh, other sectors of the, the government as well, who are probably quite unhappy with this war and therefore with Putin's decision-making. But uh, if, the, if there are such people, they, uh, it's not clear what they can do about it. Um, but if, if Putin were to make a proposal, so let, let me say one thing, that there's some speculation that uh, in keeping with what I said a minute ago about this being a war of attrition, that the Russian army is getting ground down, that the war of attrition favors the Ukrainian side, again, because we're supplying Ukraine with precision-guided weapons and Russia is running out of it. And so the Russian army could end up destroyed by this war if, if things continue as they have. Now, of course, the Russian army doesn't want this. Putin is not actually a military man. He's from the Intel, he's from the KGB. And so this is kind of, this is speculative, but it's realistic. I, I think there's, there's a lot to this. You can think some of these Russian generals and some of the generals have been killed in the war itself, really don't like the way this thing is going. And so if, if, it, if the war of attrition continues, they might actually try something against Putin. What if Putin, get, to get to your question, what if he proposed some kind of into the war that they don't like. Um, this would happen if, let, let's say, tomorrow or next week, Putin says, you know what, I think we've had enough. We should just hold on to what we have. We've got the eastern and southern parts of Ukraine, and, you know, Ukrainians have a lot more um, firepower and patriotism and leadership than we thought. Maybe we should, for now, for now, we'll just settle. I think some in the Russian army would, would say good call. And it, no doubt others would be quite, quite angry. Um, it's really, it's kind of a black box. What happens after that? You know, we don't know how that, that comes out, but, but you're right that Putin is not an absolute dictator. There are um, people, especially the high command in the army that could potentially overthrow him or demote him in, in some way. Now, Putin uh, being a former KGB guy thinks about this all the time, right? He is um, no doubt taken lots of steps to insulate himself from a coup d'etat. He's coup proofed himself uh, up to a point. So my, my takeaway from all of this, Byron, is um, he probably won't be overthrown. It's just too hard to overthrow uh, a guy like that. And that means he probably would be able to decide to be the main decision maker on how and when to end the war. Um, so he could probably get away with something like that, uh, with saying, you know what, we've had enough, we should end the war now. I just don't think he's showing any sign of being ready to do that. I, I don't, I don't see it. You mentioned, um, coup proofing, uh, quickly define that for our listeners and also tie that coup proofing to, uh, President Biden's statement earlier that Putin cannot remain in power, which some took was a open uh, appeal to overthrow him, if you would. Yes. Yes. I don't quite know what 
the president, President Biden meant. I, I think it probably was just a from the heart kind of emotional statement. And we can all resonate with that. Right. I mean, uh, um, but it, yeah, it might be that Biden was issuing a kind of a signal to, let's say, the Russian military or intelligence. Uh, if 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 you want to get rid of this guy, we're we're with you. We'll talk. We will talk with you when it's over or what might even help you. Uh, I, I kind of doubt that, but it's possible. But coup proofing is um, a technique that authoritarian leaders use to, to make sure they can't be overthrown. Now, the most common way for a dictator to lose power is for his military to overthrow him. Generals or sometimes colonels, uh, sort of a level below the generals. Discontented, they think the, the dictator is leading the country to ruin. The dictator is favoring the wrong people within the military. So you can have a discontented group of, say, younger officers, um, whatever. There are a number of reasons why this happens. But the reason, of course, the reason why a military is the most likely entity to overthrow a dictator is because it has the weapons. And it also has logistical capability. It is uh, part of the government, so it has lots of information and, and so on. So a dictator worries about public opinion, might worry about um, other arms of the government, might worry about the police, but really worries mostly about his own military. So how does a, a dictator coup-proof himself? Well, he, there are a number of things he can do. He, first of all, insists that the main criterion for rising in the military is not ability, but loyalty. So if you, and you know, they have ways of making sure you're actually loyal. Um, another thing they do, and Stalin, way back in the Soviet era, in World War II, and, and, and uh, before and after that as well, was very good. And Saddam Hussein of Iraq was very good about this too. He would just um, purge, he would kill or imprison people in his own military. Um, both if he suspected them of disloyalty, but also just sort of at random, just to keep the generals afraid of him. Um, a third thing that Stalin would do and other dictators have done is a kind of a triangulation. So let, let's say you're Stalin you're, you're, or you're Putin and um, you, you want to coup-proof yourself. You might talk to one of your generals privately and say, you know what, this other general, you know, you're General A. General B doesn't like you very much. He was saying some things about you. Uh, but don't worry, I've got your back. And then he'd call General B into his office privately and say to General B, you know, General A was telling me some things about you that you're not loyal, but I don't believe him. I just wanted you to know, though, he's kind of out to get you, but don't worry, I've got your back. And that way he creates suspicion among his own generals. They don't trust each other, and but they do, they are loyal to him. So those are some of the techniques that, that dictators use to, to coup-proof themselves. And uh, he, here again, I don't know Putin's, you know, the machinations of his regime. I do know he's been in power for 22 years, so he's really good at this. I also know that Russian oligarchs have been poisoned and Russian generals, some, some have been demoted at least. And so I, I, I think Putin's pretty good at, at, at coup-proofing. Talk about what we haven't talked about. We've sort of talked around it, but talk specifically uh, to what extent the economic sanctions have played a role in this conflict. Well, the, the, the biggest impact so far is really to damage Russia's economy and make Putin a, a, maybe a bit worried about his popularity. Now, mind you, uh, the propaganda machine in Russia is at cranking, you know, it's full tilt. And so Russians apparently, you know, it's, it's hard to know what, what Russians really believe in their hearts because they live in an authoritarian country, but certainly they appear to be quite patriotic. They appear to believe uh, Russia's line, Putin's line about Ukraine being run by Nazis and, uh, and so on. And that, that this war is America's fault and America wants to rule the world and, and so on. Um, and so the propaganda machine is helping insulate Putin from any political damage from the economic sanctions. 
he's able to blame to say the sanctions are, you know, what do you expect from America? They hate us. They hate Russia. They hate you. And so it's not my fault, not Putin's fault. It's it's America's fault. You know, so that line, sure, it, it's helping insulate him. But there has been real uh, a real downturn in the economy. It also the, the sanctions, more to the point regarding the war, are um, a, a lot of them have to do with Russia's inability to import and export. It's still exporting energy, oil and gas. This is a, as everybody knows, I think this is a, a giant loophole in the sanctions. The Europeans, in particular, are buying lots of oil and, and natural gas from Russia, and that is basically how Russia is paying for the war. Uh, about a billion dollars a day come into Russia from oil and gas exports, and the majority of that is is Europe, Germany, France, and, and other countries. So, so that's a loophole. But the sanctions have been quite effective in other ways. And uh, I want to point to something I said a minute ago, Russia needs to import high-tech components to conduct the war the way it wants to in a 21st century manner. Uh, Precision guided munitions, as I said a minute ago. And it's really not able to do that. The United States and NATO uh, are um, imposing economic sanctions on any company that exports these components to Russia. And the companies, even the Chinese companies are responding. They say, we don't want to touch this. Why? Because our main market is not Russia. It's Europe and North America and Japan. These are the, these are the countries that have a lot of money. They buy a lot from us. We're not going to touch this. Russia's just going to have to be on its own. So the sanctions are working in, in, in that way. Uh, given... Um that the conflict that, that as you've articulated it uh, is not going uh, probably the way uh, Putin drew it up. Uh, are you concerned that this reality might make him more unpredictable and dare I say more reckless? Yes, I, I, I have a, a, a bit of a, a bit of fear about that. Now this in a way gets to this, topic we we touched on earlier about it, whether Putin is rational. But I want to set that aside and just talk about a desperate leader. So, uh, and, and there's one horrible, among the horrible stories about Nazi Germany was the, the one that hit Hitler in, in um, May 1945 is, is in the bunker underground in Berlin, and he knows he's lost, and he issues orders to his army to go to destroy Germany. Germany has proved unworthy of him after all. And uh, the army did not carry out that order. Uh, but that just shows how a particularly you know, psychotic leader who's desperate, who's at the end of his rope, will just order cra crazy things, self-destructive things. All right. So Putin is not Hitler. I don't think he's that kind of psychopath. Uh, and he's and Russia is not in anything like the condition that Nazi Germany was in May 1945. So let me, but I'm just setting the Hitler story as a kind of limiting extreme case, just to make the point that, you know, a desperate leader will do things that are, are self-destructive. All right. So Putin could reach the point where he, he realizes uh, I'm, I'm losing this thing. In fact, the, this war of attrition, I'm losing the war of attrition. I thought I would at least win that, but I'm not winning that after all. Can I do anything? Can I gamble here? Are there any gambles that, you know, if I'm going to lose anyway, if I, if I keep going like I'm going, I'm going to lose. Is there something I could do to kind of shake things up and at least give myself a 10% chance of winning coming out of this thing on top? The one that people worry the most about is something I've touched on and you've touched on, nuclear weapons. So how would that look? Well, let me start by saying there are two categories of nuclear weapon. There are strategic long range, very destructive, and they're tactical, which are meant for battlefield use, short range, and they're really just quite destructive, but they're not as destructive as the uh, strategic ones. Now, Ukraine is a neighboring country, neighboring to Russia, and the Russian army is in parts of it. So it seems like the more likely nuclear weapon that Putin would use would be a tactical, the smaller battlefield weapon. Now, why would he do that if his army is fighting? 
his army would suffer uh, fallout from, from that. And that would be bad both for the war effort and it would make him look very bad in Russia, Russia itself. What he could do, though, is explode a tactical nuclear weapon high in, in, the, in the atmosphere. This would be a, this is called an airburst. It wouldn't kill anybody. It wouldn't destroy anything on the ground, but it would be a real signal that, hey, I'm, I'm willing to do this. I'm willing to go there. Uh, maybe I'm a little crazy, but you don't, you don't want to mess with me, right? I am at a point where I'm willing to do this kind of thing to try to intimidate Ukraine, but also the United States, NATO, to divide NATO. I, I think if, if Putin did this, if he had a, exploded a tactical nuke in the atmosphere, some countries in NATO would say, all right, you know what, we need to, we need to take out the unit that fired that weapon. Maybe the United States would say that. Other NATO countries would say, no, 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 we can't. This is, he's, we are crossing the nuclear threshold. We cannot do that. So that, there would be a division within NATO if Putin did that. And that would be exactly what he wants, right? He wants to bust up NATO. Um, so, uh, in any case, if he did this, we don't really know what our own side would do, right? It, this is really uncharted territory. It's something that we have to think about. Certainly in the Pentagon, they're thinking about it. And in, in, um, um, foreign ministries and, and militaries of European allies, and no doubt, uh, Putin is thinking about it. I'll say this, Byron, um, about a month ago, maybe three weeks ago, I was getting quite bothered at just how often Putin and various ministers and military people mention nuclear weapons. That just, you know, that's not even something you joke about. They were mentioning it fairly often, kind of like the way North Korea's dictator Kim Jong-un does. In the recent weeks, they've stopped talking that way, which is quite reassuring to me. And, and Putin did not mention this on Monday at his May 9th speech in the victory parade in Moscow. So the rhetoric has toned down. And I'm thinking that they have gamed out the situation if they were to use nuclear weapons and they've figured out it, would, it wouldn't be worth it. I, I think so. For example, any hope that Russia has of help from China would probably evaporate once Russia used a nuclear weapon. I think the Chinese do not want Russia to go there. They don't want to get into this. Um, India has been very pro-Russia. Uh, they, they don't want this to happen. Um, so I, I think they have, the Russians have backed, backed off of that. Now, that. That's not to say it's impossible. Putin does like surprises. <laughs> uh, he likes surprising us. And this would be a great, Surprise, but I, I'm thinking on the whole, we don't have to worry quite so much about this right now. You, you, you mentioned India. Um, it's, I'm digressing, but just sort of looking at um, what I'm calling a different uh, version, the domino theory, um, that once you use battlefield nuclear weapons, doesn't that, wouldn't that change um, how India looked at Pakistan, how Pakistan looked at India? Uh, I would throw Israel in that mix. All countries that, that um, uh, either officially or unofficially have nuclear weapons. Yeah, it really could. This is um, this is all speculative, but we're we're now dealing, you know, not with the study of war, but with human psychology and, and really mass psychology and the psychology of particular leaders. But yeah, I would say there's a non-zero probability that if Russia, so so no nuclear weapon has been used in wartime since we dropped two atomic bombs on Japan in August 1945. And there's a reason for that. Um, and what, well, there, there are various reasons. One is nobody wants to cross that threshold because they don't know what that would do to other countries' decision-making calculus, right? Uh, as you're suggesting. So it's possible that if Russia used a nuclear weapon and got away with it, in particular, if this uh, had the effects that Putin wanted to have, if it divided NATO, if, if our side didn't respond, if Ukraine, uh, you know, announced, uh, you know what, it's not worth it. Uh, we don't want our country, whole country destroyed. Let's come to terms. If Putin got away with it, it, it would probably affect 
the way leaders of countries with nuclear weapons think about using them. And the ones you name, uh, plus I'd throw North, North Korea in uh, as, as probably the most the kind of scariest nuclear power. Uh, they would have to think about that uh, as well. But this is, um, on the other hand, if Russia used a nuclear weapon and were punished for it, if it didn't work or if it were punished either directly by the United States, so if the United States, in fact, took out with conventional weapons the unit, the Russian unit that fired the nuclear weapon, and there was no more nuclear use, uh, that would also be a lesson for leaders of other countries. Like, ah, this is not, they're not that, these, these weapons aren't that useful to coerce other countries in wartime. So maybe we shouldn't, maybe we shouldn't consider using them, right? So it's all uh, uncharted territory, right? I'm glad it's uncharted, right? I'm glad, I'm glad the world's never had that test. Um, but if we did, I think it depends on the consequences, what, what the outcomes would be for Russia. Uh, continuing in the land of speculation, you know, I'm, I'm wondering that, uh, you know, Putin uh, uh, in Russia and uh, uh, specifically was, was very involved in supporting uh, Bashar uh, in the Syrian civil war. Um, um, that, that seems, from what I can tell, to be going uh, Bashar's way. I mean, uh, uh, yeah. Do you think he was maybe Putin? Since we're in the land of speculation, the Putin, Putin was maybe thinking that China would play that role for him the way he played that role for Syria. I I do. Yeah. Again, you're right. We're speculating, but we all remember. I think at the start of the. Um, the Beijing Winter Olympics, which seems a long time ago, right? But it was just January. This statement from Xi Jinping, president of China and Putin about uh, uh, being friends forever and there's no limit to Chinese-Russian friendship and so on. I, I think Xi Jinping regrets, <laughs> regrets that statement. But I think Putin, it, it's easy to believe Putin interpreted that to mean green light, you know, China, China is going to back me up here because China, you know, Xi Jinping agrees with me, Vladimir Putin, that uh, NATO, the Americans have pushed us too far. Uh, the Chinese don't like these assertions of American power any more than we do. NATO expansion, you know, China has a problem with the United States and the South China Sea and with Taiwan. We're, we basically are in the same situation, Russia and China, vis-a-vis -vis the Americans. So, hey, you know, it sounds like I've nailed down China and they're going to back me. It's easy to see Putin coming to that conclusion. Maybe he misjudged in part because he overestimated Chinese Chinese support. Staying in the land of speculation, does NATO need to consider face-saving measures for Putin to avoid the appearance of a total defeat if it came to that? And the reason I say that is because Putin is not Slobodan Milosevic in that no matter how this ends without some sort of dramatic turn of events, in my view, it's difficult for me to see Putin being uh, before the Hague. Your thoughts? Yes, I, I agree on that. So, you know, when you really press diplomats, they, they admit, yep. It has to be some kind of off-ramp or face-saving for Putin. Maybe not, maybe not a great one for him, but um, the alternative is you just fight on and on and on and hope he gets toppled or actually try regime change in Russia, which is completely crazy that the United States would you know, invade Russia or you know, so that's that's just not gonna happen. That's way outside the realm of possibility. So so the, the alternatives to cutting some kind of deal with Putin are, are un, unworkable, it seems to me, unless there's an uprising in Russia or his military get rid of him. But as I said a minute ago, I don't think that's very likely. So the, I'll, I'll give you one other alternative, which is there is no actual settlement in Ukraine. Instead, both sides begin to realize over the next few months that they're not getting anywhere. And so it becomes a, what we call a frozen conflict. 
This is one where there's very low grade fighting and neither side has agreed to stop the war, but it kind of stops. It reaches a low, a low boil. There's an, one example of this is in Georgia, Central Asian Georgia, which used to be a Republic of the Soviet Union. Back in 2008, Putin had Russia uh, invade two provinces of Georgia, South Ossetia and Abkhazia, and help. And, and they, so these are ethnic minorities within the state of Georgia, and they don't like Georgians. They don't like living in Georgia. So in Russia, Putin knew this, and so he invaded a uh, small invasion to help them declare independence from Georgia. So there are two self-described little republics of Abkhazia and South Ossetia. They're very small, and no, nobody else in the world recognizes them, I don't think, as independent countries, but, um, but Russia does. And Georgia wants them back. It wants to control them, but it, it's not able to do it right now. So there's no peace treaty between Georgia and Russia over these two little statelets. It's just kind of this frozen conflict, right? So because Putin has done this before, there's some chance that he'd be content to do it again in Ukraine. The more I think about it, the more I think that's the probable outcome of a frozen, uh, frozen conflict because it's so hard to think of a, a negotiated settlement between Russia and Ukraine. The two sides have completely different ideas for the future of Ukraine, right? The Ukrainian government says not one inch of Ukrainian territory goes to Russia. And so that's, that's an absolutist position. And I get it. If I were Ukrainian, that, that's how I would feel too. Uh, Russia has very different ideas, right? We, we, can, we control Ukraine and we, we, in fact, take some of Ukraine back because it's actually part of Russia. You, there's no overlap between those two positions uh, of Ukraine and Russia, none. And so there's nothing to negotiate about, really. Professor John Owen, University of Virginia, sir, I want to thank you for joining me once again on the public morality. And regretfully, uh, I'm sure we will have you back for another update on Ukraine yeah. because I'm, <laughs> I'm sure it will change again. <laughs> yeah, oh, no, no doubt. Byron, thanks. It's been it's been great chatting. And uh, till next time. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at PublicMorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N at PublicMorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, and SoundCloud. Those listening to the Public Morality on WSNC can now listen on its app, Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click open to listen from anywhere. And once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WGAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the Public Rally at their studios. The Public Rally is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Rally, I'm Byron Williams.